and welcome to Food Network Obsessed. This is the podcast where we dish on all things Food Network with your favorite Food Network stars. I'm your host, Jamie Sire, and today we have a chef with us to talk about his easy bake oven, Japanese heritage, and why one day he decided to sell all of his stuff and move to Costa Rica. He is a chef, restaurateur, entrepreneur, and philanthropist. He is an Iron Chef America winner, and he's going to be on the new season of Tournament of Champions. It's Justin Sutherland. Justin, welcome to the podcast. Uh, we just had Eric Adjapong on. We were reminiscing about the, the brew fest that we all did together before the world shut down. Um, so it's so great to reconnect with you here on Food Network Obsessed. Awesome. No, thank you. Thank you for having me. And uh, yeah, Eric's become one of my really, really good friends. So that's awesome. You get to talk to him. He's crushing yeah. it right now. He is, as are you. So we're so excited to talk to you about all of your your projects that you have going on right now. But let's start off with a little a little true or false. You asked for an easy bake oven on your fifth birthday. Is that true? I, I absolutely did. My, my dad said no. It's early 80s. Uh, you know, boys weren't getting easy bake ovens, but uh, my grandma said yes. And I got it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you didn't look back, apparently. Uh, so, so apparently you loved cooking at a very early age. What were you watching or experiencing that kind of pulled you in that direction? I was obsessed with the show Yen Can Cook. <laughs> like Martin Yen, I just, I don't know. My grandma used to take care of us when we were kids and that was always on the uh, on the TV there. So I was watching that and really was watching both of my grandmothers. Uh, they just, they were always in the kitchen. Food was just kind of their love language. And, you know, so just following them around uh, really got me into food. Yeah, it seems like you really have a, a special relationship with your your grandmothers. Um, I saw on Instagram you gave your obachan or your grandmother her first pair of Jordans for Christmas, which, you know, is the, the wholesome content we all need right now. How does she kind of integrate Japanese food and culture into your childhood? In, in a very, very big way. Uh, you know, when she came to this country, she spoke zero English. You know, she met my grandpa when he was in the Korean War, stationed over there, moved over here. So food was really the only way that she could, you know, teach us about Japan and, 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 and get us connected to her, you know, her past. I mean, we brought our friends over to her house all the time for, for skiaki and, and sushi. And she was always food was the way she could share her history with us. What are some of your favorite things to cook together? Our two number one dishes that we always brought our friends over to her house and that me and my brother still love are, are definitely her uh, pork tonkatsu. And, uh, and skiaki. For anybody that doesn't know, what is skiaki? Yeah, skiaki is a, a very traditional, like one pot meal. Um, that it, kind of every family in Japan kind of has their own ingredients that they add to it. But they have a table, like a coffee table in the living room with a burner built in the middle. And they make this rich hearty broth and you throw in tofu and shaved beef and noodles and shiitake mushrooms and cabbage and all kinds of things. And then everybody just sits around this table and eats, you know, eats out of the same pot. I love that. Have you had an opportunity to visit Japan? I have. Yeah. Um, many times when when I was younger, quite a bit. My mom worked for the airline. So up until 26, we got uh, free flight benefits. So growing up, we had a yearly trip to Japan. So I've been many times. At some point, your path kind of went a different direction. You actually went to business school in preparation for law school. What about that path at the time seemed compelling? And then what ultimately changed your mind? I think it's twofold. I was always wanted to be a lawyer. Like growing up, my favorite show was The Practice. Like we watched that with my family. 
And I know business school is just kind of the natural path if you didn't know exactly what you wanted to do. And, <laughs> and you know, cooking wasn't a glamorous profession whatsoever, especially, you know, back then. So I just, you know, business school was the default, but I always thought I wanted to be a lawyer. What made you change your mind? Uh, you know, I finished. I got my business management degree. I was getting ready to go to law school. I was selling mortgage um, in that summer and just sitting in a cubicle and cold calling and, and just continuing research and all this. I just remember calling my dad and I was like, I, there's no way. <laughs> I was like, this is what the next 40 plus years of my life. Are there's no way. And he was, he was the one who was like, you've always loved cooking. You've always loved food. Why don't you try culinary school? And you know, you're young enough. If it doesn't work out, you got your business degree. We can restart, but don't get into life now and hate what you do. Yeah. I mean, that's good advice. And by the way, the, the lawyer to chef pipeline is actually somewhat common on this podcast for some reason, believe it or not. But you attended culinary school in Atlanta. You stayed there working for several years after. What were some of your formative experiences like in the kitchen after you graduated? I mean, it's, it's really the first time that I started working in professional kitchens. And, and, and nowadays, these are things that we don't we don't celebrate. You know, we're trying to have a better you know grasp on our industry. But I remember working at the first like fine dining restaurant I worked at in Atlanta. I could work lunch and prep. Like they wouldn't let me work dinner service. One day, the dinner guy called out sick, and the chef came up to me, and she was like, "This is your chance. You're up. You're working. You're working saute on dinner tonight." <laughs> Which was, I mean, what I've been working for the whole time. And I remember cooking this foie gras, and we had a little dump sink over by the side where we throw our dirty pans in. Cook this foie gras. All this this rendered foie gras fat was in the pan. And I went to toss the pan into the sink and the front of the pan caught the bottom of the lip of the dump sink. And like in slow motion, I watched this foie gras fat come up in the air and just land directly on my arm and like third degree burn it down to the tendons. Oh my gosh. I ran to the bathroom. I cut the top of my sock off and put it over my arm. What? Didn't tell anybody because I had to finish service. Like, this is my first. I'll never get to work dinner service again. Like, I can't tell chef that I just burnt myself and have to go to the hospital. So, I continued service all the way through. And then afterwards, I was like, chef, I think I should go to the hospital. <laughs> and I pulled the, the ripped sock off my arm and showed her. And she was like, when did this happen? I was like, at the beginning of service. <laughs> what did she, I mean, what did she say? <laughs> I mean, she gave me a fist bump for my uh, making it through service and also told me I was an idiot and sent me to the hospital. <laughs> well, obviously you're okay now. I mean, do you still have like scars from, from that? I do. I have a, a sizable, I mean, it's covered with tattoos now, but yeah, I definitely yeah. have a sizable scar. I mean, yeah, it was, it was insane, but there was no way I was going to leave the line and go to the hospital on my first day getting to work the station I've always wanted to work. Is paying your dues kind of a common theme when you're a young chef like that? Absolutely. I mean, yeah, absolutely. I think I think the way in which you pay your dues are, are different now. The the abuse is a little less, but I mean, you have to. I mean, it's a skilled trade. You need to learn. Well, I, I want to get into your career growth in your hometown of St. Paul and opening your restaurant, Handsome Hog. But before we get to that, I am super curious about your quarter life crisis, as you called it. After working a few years, you sold all of your belongings, bought a one-way ticket to Costa Rica, and ended up staying there for about eight months. What was happening in your life at the time that kind of forced you to hit the reset button? Yeah, I mean, it was just kind of a, a culmination of so many things. You know, I had finally got where I thought I wanted to be in a, in a restaurant path. I started working at Meritage, which was the restaurant in St. Paul that I really wanted to work for. Worked my way up from Garmanger to, to sous chef to chef de cuisine and opened this new restaurant. There was a breakup in there at some point. I had just totaled my car like two weeks oh, prior. Wow. 
and like sh- probably shouldn't have walked away from it. Like my car was mangled and didn't have a scratch, and just all these things came up. I was like, man, what am I? What am I doing with my life? <laughs> like I got this job that I wanted, but you know I wasn't making enough money. I was working hundred, you know, hundred hours a week, and I think just everything just kind of closed in, and I was like, I need to go figure out what's next. So why Costa Rica? I just heard stories that that was the place to go to to figure your your stuff out. Um, I had a bunch of friends that had done, you know, previously and spent a considerable amount of time. And I don't know, it was a very spur of the moment decision. I wrote my parents a letter because I couldn't tell them. I was like, just so you know, I'll be leaving for a while. Wait, they didn't know that you were going? This was a decision made in 72 hours. Like I had hard service at work, had the car crash, had the breakup with the girlfriend, just all these things. And I was like, I'm out of here. Well, I don't blame you. I've been to Costa Rica as well. It is a it is a magical place. Would you describe that experience there as kind of transformative? Absolutely. I, I mean, it. I mean, mentally and just everything, it, it changed who I was as a person. I, I didn't know how long I was going to stay. I thought it was going to be two, three weeks, and ended up being eight months. Met you know some some best friends I still have today, and really, it was it's good. Always good to step back and like you know evaluate your life, and you never really know who you are until you're just completely by yourself without any you know external people saying this is you know this is who we think you are. When you're completely by yourself and don't know anybody, that's when you figure it out. Did you did you work at all while you were there? Or you kind of were just there to kind of reset and kind of reevaluate things. Yeah, definitely don't did not work. <laughs> well, I was either sleeping in a hammock on the beach or staying in hostels that were two dollars a night. <laughs> I mean, that doesn't sound too bad. Uh, what is your advice to someone out there who might be feeling the same? Might be feeling a little burned out, a little uninspired. Yeah, I mean, I think you know times are a little bit different now, but I think I think you have to just do that that step back. I just think the you know. What what people expect of us are can weigh very heavily on us, and you, you got to check in with yourself sometimes. And it's okay to you know take those mental health breaks and take those take those breaks in general, just to be by yourself. I think it's very important. Sometimes it's very important to be alone. Absolutely. And after that trip, you you returned back home. You were kind of making some moves to open up your first restaurant, Handsome Hog. Uh, when you were making your business plan and kind of visualizing that first restaurant, what were some of the non negotiables for you? I had to be the boss. I was done working for people. That was <laughs> that's why I left. I, I just for me, like I, I wanted it to be small. I wanted it to be intimate. Like I wanted to be able to make the food, be out, talk, you know, talk to the people, and just keep it keep it nice and small. And I think you know the business degree helps a lot. Everybody wants to make good food, but there's so much more to the business. And I think that's where a lot of us fail, which I have many times. You know, thinking, oh, this is amazing. Everyone's going to want it, but you don't take into account the numbers, and you got to pay rent. Yep. The dishes there described as pork-centric Southern contemporary. How did you bring your classic French training and affinity for Southern food together to to create this approach? And that's what it was really all about for me with Handsome Hog. Like I love just Southern food, the the story behind it, soul food, and the flavors. And then having been classically French trained and working at a fine dining French restaurant, uh, which I still love, but I wanted to take like those skills that I had learned and, and apply them to you know, very classic Southern food. How has the culinary community in the Twin Cities kind of evolved over the years? And and what do you see for it in the future? I mean, I think we have one of the greatest uh, food scenes, you know, in, in the country right now. I think it's extremely innovative. I think when people think about like, what is food for Minnesota, but, you know, known or unknown. I and mean, we have the, the largest Hmong community in the country, the largest Somalian community in the country, a huge Vietnamese, you know, Native American community. And so there's so many, so much food that resides in, in Minnesota and in the Twin Cities that really define its its culinary landscape. And and 
you know, there's Minnesota nice, but I think, you know, we have this just like, all, you know, all the chefs here just play nice together. Like it's awesome. We always cook at each other's restaurants and there's collaborations and pop-ups and just so much support. So yeah, I, I love being a part of this. Yeah. And then since opening that first restaurant, you've also added more projects to the portfolio. Obacha noodles and chicken, uh, chickpea hummus bar, the gnome, Woodfire Cantina, Grey Duck Tavern. Your business education certainly being put to good use, I would say. What had you learned in the process of opening Handsome Hog that you were able to apply to these new ventures? I mean, so many things. <laughs> <laughs> Knowing your numbers, like you have to know how to operate it as a business. I mean, a lot of times you know, restaurants are passion projects. And if it's just a passion project, my advice is just do it at home. Because <laughs> it's a very, very expensive venture. If it's not a passion project, what is your advice for, for somebody that dreams of opening their own restaurant? You know, know the neighborhood, the area you're going into. Again, it comes down to really dialing in those numbers and those food costs and all of the things that are not associated with the food. You know, we focus, especially as when you're chef owners, if you're a chef or someone, you know, for a, a business person, they're generally watching their numbers. But if you're a chef owner, you're usually more you know, concerned with, you know, the food. And yes, that's the most important thing, but not to the bank. <laughs> yeah. Is there a restaurant concept that you've had on your mind for a while that you would still like to bring to life that you haven't yet? Yeah, I have one. I have one on the way. I that will be coming out soon. I'm obsessed with egg sandwiches. Oh yes, me too. <laughs> obsessed. It's my. It's like my favorite food in the world. It's like a good egg sandwich. And I'm obsessed with '90s hip hop. I have. I have a, a new concept coming that'll be a multi-state kind of quick service concept called Big E. Okay, like it. Yeah. Or Big E and the yep. Big E, but it's just it's a high end egg sandwich concept that will be rolling out here in the coming months. That's amazing. Is there is there going to be one in New York? Hopefully, <laughs> New York's on the list. I think we've okay. got like you know four or five locations in Minneapolis, Portland, Nashville, and definitely New York. Okay. All right. Well, let me know when that happens. Um, but you are obviously a, a very ambitious individual entrepreneur. You're also the co-owner of Hybrid Nation, which is a socially conscious streetwear and lifestyle brand. You co-founded a nonprofit called North Sands to support and provide relief to struggling hospitality workers during the pandemic. And both of these initiatives really focus on support for black and brown communities and encourage conversations around diversity and social equality. Uh, when we're looking, I guess, specifically at the culinary industry and the food world, what does genuine representation and diversity look like to you? It's a big question. I mean, if you if you focus it on the culinary world, I mean, I think it's I mean, it stems from the beginning. I mean, if you look at brands like Uncle Nearest and, we, you know, get their stories. I mean, there was so many times where, you know, people of color, whether it's the cooks, whether it's the dishwashers, whether it's the chef that came up with the menu was always in the back of the kitchen, but never able to be the face of it. So, I mean, that that's a huge part now. Uh, and, and, and women in the kitchen that are just we're seeing this insurgence of female chefs that are finally, you know, being, you know, given the uh, platform that they've that they've always deserved. I just I think, you know, people of color, immigrants have always been the backbone of of the restaurant industry. So, you know, being able to support and, and showcase them is is important. I mean, being a person of color and, you know, coming up, you know, through through this industry and knowing how difficult it's been to, you know, to to, to get any credit is, has always been tough. And then when I, you know, once I finally got somewhat of a spotlight, you know, looking around and seeing how many other people have not been given that same opportunity. So, you know, I was I was given a shot and I want to make sure that, that everybody else has the opportunity to tell their stories and, and do their thing. 
Justin tells us what it was like to compete against Alex Gornashelli on Iron Chef America and teases what we can expect to see on the next season of Tournament of Champions. You've competed on Iron Chef America. How certain were you about your foray into competing on television? Did it feel natural initially? I, I mean, no. It, I, <laughs> I, I, I don't even remember my Iron Chef. Like, I blacked out. It just, it just <laughs> happens. I mean, I remember being at work and somebody from Food Network called and they're like, this is a producer from Food Network. Do you want to be on Iron Chef? And I thought I was getting a prank phone call. Because <laughs> it was the year I opened Handsome Hog and I was like, somebody's messing with me because I opened my first restaurant. And I literally think I hung up on them. <laughs> and they called back and they're like, no, this is serious. But I love it. I mean, it's fun. It's always good to win, but it's, <laughs> it's also a lot of fun. Yeah. I mean, I can't believe you don't remember it because, I mean, you won. <laughs> you won against the Iron Chef herself, Alex Uh, You finally got to kind of flex those ramen muscles on stage, create some dishes that really reflect your diverse background that we've been talking about it. So, I mean, do you remember what was going through your mind when you were on the clock or or do you really not <laughs> remember anything from that? I mean, I, I mean, it was a while after. I mean, I, I had my sous chefs there and like, when we got done, I was like, do you guys remember anything that happened? Like, and then I went and read when, when it finally aired and I watched it and I was like, oh my God. But we had like practiced so much leading up to it. And I think it's just, you know, you just get into that, that war mode and I don't know, something clicked. Like I saw red and just went and then it was over. I mean, how do you prepare for something like that? Obviously not knowing, you know, what the, the secret ingredient is going to be, but just, you know, kind of honing like the dishes that you maybe would want to represent on the show. Yeah, I think twofold on that. Um, I mean, we practiced. I, I grabbed Donald and Brandon. And the first thing we did is just figure out what we can't accomplish in that time frame. So my friend's restaurant was only open for dinner. So we would go there from 8 a.m. until 2 p.m. every day and just practice things that we knew how to do and see if it was something that we could do in that amount of time. Like we didn't know what the ingredients were. I was like, all right, if I want to make this, is it even possible? So you know what things to check off of your list that like you can't do this. And then you figure out things you absolutely wanted to do. I was like, no matter what, I'm going to make ramen in one hour on TV. <laughs> I knew I wanted to do it. And like, the first time I made it, like just making it, it took 19 minutes from beginning to end. And then I practiced it every day. And then by the time we get it done, I made it in six minutes. And I was like, all right, if I can do wow. this in six minutes. And then, yeah, muscle memory just kicks in and just do it. How do you make ramen in six minutes? <laughs> I couldn't do it. I think that was that was a fast learned and uh, fast unlearned skill. I definitely yeah, yeah, couldn't yeah. do it again. You mentioned your your sous chefs who, you know, in, in that format, you get to bring with you uh, on these competitions. How did you choose like who was going to come with you and help out? I mean, I knew immediately. I mean, they were the first the second I got that phone call. The next phone call was was to Brandon Randolph and Donald Gonzalez. Both of them have you know worked for me or with me in, in many capacities and been chefs from other restaurants. But that's definitely not always the the key. I think it's you got to have somebody that you know thinks like you that you don't have to say anything that we can just you know give one word cues and we're all in sync. And these are two guys that I've cooked with for a lot in my life, and I, I knew they're the ones to bring. Well, I, I mean, I know from doing Iron Chef Showdown, it is it is a beast. Um, so the fact that you were able to to go on and also beat Alex Cornichelli is, is certainly an accomplishment. And now. You have a new challenge ahead. Uh, without spoiling too much, you are on the new season of Tournament of Champions. So how terrifying is the randomizer in person? It's absolute insanity. <laughs> it's amazing when it comes to food competition because it, it makes it anyone's game. You know, I mean, walking in there with some of the 32 greatest chefs in the world, 
But then that randomizer is it's humbleizing. It brings everybody to an equal playing field. You never know what's going to come up, but it's absolutely ridiculous. Guy, you are crazy. <laughs> was that your first time working with him? It was in a, in a real capacity. I just last week got back. I did a, a week of guys grocery games post tournament of champions. But yeah, that was our first time working, working <laughs> together. I'm sure that was a, a nice uh, change from being on stage competing under the gun and, and just kind of being able to sit back and, and have fun on Guy's Grocery Games. Oh, no, you haven't seen my episode yet. <laughs> it was no relaxing and having fun. No relaxing? Okay. I'm looking forward to seeing that. I mean, how how does Tournament of Champions compare to other culinary competitions? Uh, yeah, I mean, it has all of the... You know, the things from other competitions, the time limit, the, the, the picking food, but, but having the randomizer choose and having the random bracket, you know, and especially with a seeding situation. And in, in the last couple of seasons, we've seen a lot of upsets with number ones losing to, you know, number tens and this and that. So I think just the, the entire way it's put together, it's definitely in the chef's best interest because it, it puts everybody on an unequal playing field, but it also makes things potentially crazy. Yeah. I mean, the, I think the the blind, you know, taste testing as well, the, the judges not knowing even who is competing at all. I think, like you said, it, it really puts everybody on that that even uh, playing field. So we'll look forward to uh, seeing how you progress in, in that competition. You're also a fresh face on Chopped as a judge, which is super exciting. Um, who did you get to judge alongside on your first day? Oh, man. Brooke Williamson and Mark Murphy, I think, were our, were our day ones. We did an episode after that with Kwame, which was awesome. Nice. Uh, yeah, I think I did seven episodes in total. So we're in a whole, whole gambit of awesome judges. <laughs> what is it like uh, kind of being on that side of things, not actually having to compete, just getting to, you know, analyze what, what the other competitors are doing? I mean, it's definitely better to be on that side of the table <laughs> than the other. Um, but there's a whole nother, you know, level of, you know, things that you have to you have to do. I mean, you've, you got to speak eloquently and... and at the end of the day, you're sending people home and, and crushing some dreams. So you have to make sure that, that your feedback is, is valid and true and your palate is right. Uh, what, what never ceases to kind of amaze you when you're observing these competitors up there on Chopped? I mean, it's intense. I mean, Chopped is crazy. And it's, I mean, unlike other things where you have, you know, one hour to do this or 30 minutes. I mean, they're making a full three-course meal. So I'm always impressed when people come out on Chopped and, and make it through that day. I mean, it's, it's a long day. It's an eight, 10 hour day of just nonstop mm -hmm. cooking. And you get, there's no other show out there that, that makes you cook three separate meals in one day. So I'm, I'm impressed by everybody who does that. That's nuts. I mean, as a judge, are you ever kind of in your head thinking about what you would do with those Chopped basket ingredients? A hundred percent. I think all the judges do. I mean, as soon as the basket ingredients are revealed, I mean, all the judges get together and we're like, what would you do? What would you do? It's like <laughs> we have an entire like game plan. And sometimes you just get the edge and like, oh, I just wish we could go out there and do it. Um, but yeah, you can't help but look at that and try and figure out what you do. Is there an ingredient out there either that you saw during one of your episodes or just, you know, in general that would hands down get yourself chopped? <laughs> I mean, yes. I mean, I'm impressed at anybody, at anybody who doesn't get chopped on that show. I mean, we've had episodes with lettuce flavored ice cream with, oh. with I mean, a savory dish with uh, Christmas cupcakes. I mean, so many things. I mean, that's the whole point of the show, but there's so many, everything that comes out is meant to make you lose your mind. Well, there are certainly so many exciting things happening for you as a public figure with your name, your career on the rise. What keeps you grounded? Everything. I mean, knowing, knowing that this, none of this was intentional, I could all go, you know, go away any day. Um, you know, I'm just very happy to cook food and, and do it on a platform. 
I feel very blessed and grateful every day. Uh, well, it's been so fun to see your your career develop, evolve, shoot up over the last couple of years since uh, we first met. And this has been such a, a blast catching up with you and kind of hearing your story. Uh, we're going to finish things off with a few rapid fire questions. And then we have one final question that we ask all of our guests here on Food Network Obsessed. So rapid fire, guilty pleasure TV show. I've been watching this show called Big Sky. I don't know if you, but okay. I don't watch a lot of like network TV, but it just like it's it sucked me in and it's like on ABC and it's cheesy and I don't tell people I watch it. Your ramen order. Like show your ramen with pork and it's got to be a runny egg. I-, I agree. Tattoo that won't make sense to anyone but you. Man, I well, I have like 70 tattoos and most of them mean absolutely. 70? I think so. Yeah. I mean, all kinds of little weird stuff. Uh, and most of them don't make any sense because I'll put anything on my body. <laughs> I do have a tuna on my hand that everybody asks about that nobody would know. And it was after Top Chef, All we all decided we'd get a tattoo that represented the last dish that we cooked on Top Chef before we got sent home. Okay. So most of us got some, you know, some weird connection to that. So I got a big yellowtail tuna on my hand. What was your first tattoo? Uh, my first tattoo was a chef hat that I drew after finals in culinary school. And I got the tattoo to make sure that I didn't quit the job. And I was like, well, if you get a tattoo, then you have to keep doing it because you can't get a chef ad. And then in 10 years, tell people you're not a chef. <laughs> All right. That's that's a good way to hold yourself accountable. Favorite way to unwind? I mean, take a nap. <laughs> Fair. If we looked at your Spotify account search, what would we find? A lot of Rufus the Soul, probably a lot of Rick Ross. There's two different two different <laughs> sides. I'm either, either chilling or, or getting real aggressive. All right. Um, a hidden gem in St. Paul that you love. Uh, there's a really cool bar called the White Squirrel Bar. It holds like 20 people, but they tend to pack 60 people in there. But they don't have a phone number or a website or anything. You just find it and they've got generally awesome live music and uh, just a, a cool little hole in the wall. Very cool. Uh, favorite streetwear brand other than Hybrid Nation? I wear, I don't know, I like a lot of off-white, Kith, Bathing Ape. Person you would love to sit down to dinner with? Can I have dinner with Barack Obama and Jay-Z? Sure. Yeah. I love it. Our, our final question, as I, as I teased, uh, we asked this to everybody on Food Network Obsessed before we let you go. And it is a, a question that obviously elicits a lot of different responses. What would be on the menu for your perfect food day? So we want you to take us through the entire progression of meals throughout the day. Breakfast, lunch. You can throw in some snacks if you want. You don't have to. Dinner and then dessert if you're a dessert person. There basically are, are no rules. So you can time travel, spend absurd amounts of money. Anybody can serve you these meals. You could cook them if you want. We just want to hear what your ideal food day would be. I love, I'd probably have some eggs Benedict in the morning. Like the hand, you know, maybe I'll have like Thomas Keller make a, make a homemade hollandaise for me in, Ooh, in, okay. in, in my house. Like I don't want to leave oh, the house. Yeah, of course. Know. He so has he's to, gonna, he has to he's come coming over. to you. He's okay. coming to me. I like that. Yes, I'll be wearing a robe and only a robe. <laughs> and then yes, Thomas Keller is going to make a, a, a hollandaise, do a good eggs Benedict. Probably going to go to Japan and get a bowl of ramen in, in, mm-hmm. in Kyoto and get some Kobe beef uh, right out of Kyoto. After that, I think I'm a big like... I like to taste a lot of different things. So mm-hmm. I think there'd just be a smorgasbord. Definitely king crab. I'm a huge, huge, huge steak fan. So you probably mm-hmm. have, man, now I'm hungry. 
<laughs> so wait, that's for dinner. You just have like the, this huge like smorgasbord. Yeah, huge smorgasbord for dinner. I'm not a big dessert person, but I like mm-hmm. you know cheeses and fruits and things Same. like that. So I, I think I'd just be somewhere in France having just a, a a plate of all of the greatest cheeses in the world with a lot of wine and and some fruit and 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 nothing too sweet because we're gonna we're gonna do it again. All right. Well, that sounds lovely, um, especially right now in, in the midst of a uh, winter here in New York and also uh, Minnesota. I'm sure we'd like to to be in France just sipping on some wine and eating uh, some, some cheese as well. So thank you so much for taking the time. We are looking forward to seeing you in action um, in a bunch of different Food Network shows. And uh, we'll be we'll be rooting for you on Tournament of Champions. Awesome. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Good to see you. Such a delight chatting with Justin today. I'm so looking forward to watching him on the new season of Tournament of Champions, premiering February 27th at 8, 7 central on Food Network and streaming on Discovery+. Plus. Thanks so much for listening and make sure to follow us wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss a thing. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please rate and review. We love it when you do that. That's all for now. We'll catch you foodies next Friday. 